want to welcome you to another podcast interview, and this time I'm speaking with Pia Nilsson. Pia is a, a Swedish golf coach who went through the amateur ranks and then became a professional golfer, and then she led pretty much a revolutionary change in Sweden through the 90s, having a look at golf being much more than just about golf swings and golf technique. And since then, Pia's moved to the US, based herself in Arizona. She's written books called Play Your Best Golf Now and Every Shot Must Have a Purpose. I've actually read both those books. They're fantastic. She's also going to publish another one soon, which we might have a chat to her about. She is the coach of many well-known players, including Annika Sorenstam, who is arguably one of the best players, female players, to have, have played the game. Pia, thanks very much for taking the time to have a chat. Thank you, Peter. I'm super happy to talk to you. And it was a long time ago Lynn Merritt and I visited Australia, but at least now we get to talk to each other. (laughs) Finally. And, uh, yes, you were telling me that that was 2001 because that was such a long time ago. Uh, But I do remember it well. Aside from anything, I'm really interested to hear what brought you to golf? How did you start playing golf? Well, actually, I was very fortunate that I had a mom and dad and two older brothers that they played golf. So it was just a natural part of my family life. So I, I started when I was six years old. And in the summers, we lived like right next to a golf course. So and, you know, we would go in the evenings and look for tees and look for golf balls. And it was, it was just part of my life from an early age. So it couldn't be a better start. And I imagine it would have been seasonal, too. Uh, oh, yes, for, absolutely. You know, being brought up in Sweden, of course, is something we did from May till through September or so. But you know, I, I, being from a sporty family with two older brothers, I got introduced to many sports. But you know, golf was something that I always liked from early on. And and then as I started competing, I was part of kind of the first generation in Sweden where we had a more planned national team and junior team where we got education and training already in the 70s. And it was interesting that you actually had a background in multiple sports and I think that's one of the things that as coaches we need to continue to encourage because there are so many young athletes and probably more so their parents who are sort of saying, you know, we need to have this idea of early specialisation. Yes, absolutely. And I I couldn't agree more. I think it's so important to get have the multi-sport approach. And so you, you played for a while and then you became involved in coaching. So how did that come about? There were two of us from the Swedish national teams, and we were the first ones ever to come to the U.S. to go to college and play golf and, and Arizona State University. And then, then I played professionally and played on the LPGA Tour. But what happened was after that... Four, and, uh, four years and three months on the LPGA Tour, I just wanted to go back home a little bit, and I only wanted to get back, go back home because I wanted to figure out what I need to do next, not just to be kind of good and making cuts, but to, to you know, have a chance to win. And I had so many of my friends on tour that kept saying, you know, Pia, you're just trying too hard, and you're being too much a perfectionist. You just need to relax more or trust yourself more, and, you know, you're going to not just do okay, but even better. But I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> so I just went back to Sweden just for a while. I was going to do it to just play some tournaments over in Europe and just figure out, because I knew already then the solution is not to take more swing lessons. And uh, as I went back to Sweden, because I was young, I'd been in the U.S. and I played on tour, 
they just started asking me, like, please, please, when you're home, can't you please come to this training camp? And when you're home, can't you please come and talk to these younger players or be on this committee meeting? So I never, ever in my entire life thought about being a coach or leader or anything like that. It kind of just happened to me. Mm. <laughs> and as I started doing it, I realized how much I enjoyed it. And I'd had, you know, both education and experiences that, you know, made me, you know, be able to give the players I was around a different view of things. And I was always thinking, like, if, if I could have had anything different, what would it be? And that's kind of how it started. So my career path just changed without me intentionally doing it. <laughs> so some people still ask, Pia, when are you coming back to playing? It just kind of happened to me. But I realized that my passion was so strong, and I realized I was pretty good at it. And and suddenly the coach for the girls' team in Sweden had to quit suddenly. And suddenly, they, you know, some months later, they asked me at least temporarily to take over. <laughs> <laughs> and then I happened on the first team I ever coached to have Annika Sörenstam on that team too. So many interesting things in life. Yeah, yeah, nice uh... Nice the way those things come together. And so the, the philosophies that you developed, I'm assuming, is what emerged from your thoughts about how do I actually, how do I get better? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it emerged very much from that because already in Sweden at that time, we already had like, you know, we did a lot of fitness training. We had a lot of mental training. We had a more well-rounded program than, than any other European countries. And But I still knew I mean, it wasn't, there's still pieces missing. So one of the first things I knew I was missing was I hardly ever had, had my, my coaches or teachers watch me play in competition. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I did something differently there than I did when I practiced. <laughs> so I just started, like, observing so much more, writing notes, what I saw when the players played well compared to not playing well, and I communicated that to the teachers at the home club. So... That was one of the things that came directly from being a player. Like, I know what what I see and observe them doing on the golf course in competition is most one of the most vital pieces of information there is. And uh, I also knew another thing that in men's golf and women's golf there are incredibly many, you know, successful golfers, but they're incredibly unhappy human beings. Mm. So it was really intriguing to me. How would you do this? to create players who play better than ever, but they're also happy 20 years later that they have done it. <laughs> and uh, then when I teamed up with, you know, Lynn Marriott and we formed Vision 54 together, she's had so many experiences from being one of the best, you know, technical teachers and getting frustrated improving players' golf swings, but them not playing better on the golf course. So then it's been a joint effort to keep creating a, you know, a little... Yeah, different view of how we can go about playing and teaching coaching golf. So if we talk a little bit about the philosophy that's emerged over that period of time, so we're really looking now at, you know, 20 years or more, how would you explain what those philosophies are and, and why? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, from early on, even though both Lynn and I, we knew we're doing something that's not only good for women's golfers, good for all golfers, but we... We weren't as explicit about it, but now it's a lot easier. So, you know, one of the ways how we can say it now is like to play good golf, we need to look at the technical aspect. And to play good golf, we need to look at the physical aspect, at least knowing what your body can or cannot do. And we need to look at 
equipment to make his shirts fitted. But there has been this fourth area that, you know, you can clump under the art of playing. There's, you know, everybody who's played the game knows there are other pieces that influence my performance. But they've just been so implicit and vague in our opinion. So, you know, we spend now many years making that art of playing more explicit, trainable, skill-based. So, you know, for the future, a normal golf professional, we should, should cover all those areas for the beginning because it's part of our ancient game. <laughs> mm. It's not add-on skills. It's part of our game. It always has been. So it's, um, it's just been a constant process of testing things, learning a lot more about the neuroscience. And we're so fortunate we live in 2014 with so much more science available and then keep making it applicable for, for our game. Yes, and when you you were talking about your experiences on the LPGA Tour and you were told things like, you know, you just got to trust yourself and all that sort of thing, and, the, you know, answering the question, well, how do I actually do that, that's sort of evolved through what a lot of what you've done. You know, telling someone there that they've got to trust themselves more is telling, like, someone someone who has a slice, you're <laughs> slicing and then walking away. It's like, yeah. well, I know that. But what exactly. do you do about it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's been it's been so enormously much fun to keep doing this and, and keep developing it and make, you know and making it very doable, you know. So uh, you know, so the journey is still going on. <laughs> it feels like every day we keep learning and exploring things. Oh, absolutely. And and one of the the key things that you know you've written about and you've spoken about and you spoke to us about when you were when you were in Australia in 2001 is the idea of separating out the two boxes think box and play box is it think box and play box so tell me a little bit about those and why they're so important to not just to have in golf but also to be as separate things that work together well you know it, it's one of those things that for in most sports they're more rational it just comes naturally if you're playing tennis or basketball or soccer, anything like that, you know, you're just more reactionary. You're more in a, like, sensor-based mode, looking, feeling, reacting, and all of that. But in our beautiful game, because the ball is sitting still, mm. it's so easy to get the cognitive mind to involve. So, so the thing is, like we say, it's nothing we come up with. It's just from ancient knowledge and all the modern science keep proving it over and over and over again that when human beings perform, if you're tennis player, <clears throat> a surgeon, a musician, an artist, a golfer, it doesn't matter. In the moment of performance that we are, we're present, present through our senses. And we're, not, and we're not thinking cognitively trying to do something. We, you know, some players like to see the ball flight, to see the target. Others like to maybe feel the constant grip pressure or feeling a balance in their feet or... Some like to have a sense of rhythm and tempo. So, so the whole, the main point is to understand. Even in the game of golf, we need to honor <laughs> universal science knowledge to to step into the ball and and uh, you know be present and and be aware through our senses. So anyway, so that's the play box. But then anything you need to do, you better do before you step in. <laughs> and in golf, we need to think too to make a decision what club to hit and strategy to use, etc. So it's just, um, it's like kind of a non-negotiable truth to learn to have a place where you're done thinking and you step in and being more of an athlete actually putting or hitting the shots. It's, it's interesting that 
so many sports are reactive sports. You know, you've got an opponent uh, coming to you or, or trying to put you off. You've got a, a ball or a, a puck, depending on what, what sport you're playing. And you don't have time to... Well, you don't have time to think a lot of the times because everything happens so quickly. You've got to respond to it. And yet in golf, um, because the ball doesn't move until we hit it, we can tie ourselves up in knots so much. So the, yeah. the idea of the think box and the play box is, is just perfect to actually clear all that mess. Yeah, and we, you know, we think it's so incredibly important. I still you know, haven't met a really great professional club player that doesn't have a play box they might not call it that they might not be aware of it but they do when they play well and um, and i think in golf why we have a challenge with this is for two reasons one is that the ball is sitting there so you need to volitionally kind of create this reactionary state and the second reason is is you know it's our own profession all of us have been bombarding our students with all these swing thoughts and then maybe telling them okay go out and play now and forget about this or something like that and that's not very helpful. No. It's interesting that you say as in our profession because as a, as a young coach, and I know this is, this is my experience, but it's not just me. As a young coach, you feel that um, to prove your worth, if you like, you need to allow the player to understand or to know that you understand technique and so you, you tend to talk technique and of course that usually finishes up in tears after a while and then you and then you get to a point where you recognize there's more so for for young coaches do you still find that a lot of them are involved too much in technique and if you're if you're speaking with them what do you do to alter that perception about how golf should be learned and played yeah, and you know we get many of the younger uh, professionals coming to our trainings, and it's so much fun. I, I think it's many have just haven't been introduced to any other view of things, <laughs> mm. and uh, and all we're saying is, you know, are are, are they a golf teacher coach because they want to be a swing teacher, or they actually want to be a golf teacher? Someone actually learns to play better golf on the golf course, and it's a big choice to make. Because if you do choose to be a golf coach or golf teacher, you know, it would be it would be incredibly bad if we didn't bring other components in. So we just want to encourage them to have a more comprehensive view and also understand that every time we miss a shot on the golf course, of course we can prove that something technically went on. We can look at see it on video and all those things. But but we haven't had if we just talk to our younger teachers for a little while, everybody after a while understands that sometimes because my grip pressure gets tighter at impact, it messes up with my technique. But it wasn't the technique's fault. It was my unawareness of of the tension level of my hands. (laughs) Or someone misses a putt and they might have uh, pulled a four-footer. But actually the reason is that they were uncommitted to the line of the putts. So you can blame the technique, but I, we often say now we feel sorry for the technique. It gets blamed for every miss always, and it's not always its fault. It's just manifesting in the technique. So we're just showing them that it is true, it's technical, but it's not always. It's sometimes it's just, like I said, it's just dumped there, it's manifested there. And we don't have anyone when we go through that that doesn't buy into it. Yes, and you do that with a lot of very specific exercises to develop, yes. well, to develop awareness, but also to develop an awareness of 
those different components. So tell me, so what are some of the exercises that you do? There are hundreds of them, but, but we, as a starting template, and we had it in our latest book, Play Best Golf Now, that from all the golfers we've seen, seen through the years, from professional to new golfers, we distill it to like eight essential playing skills. And we, we feel that those eight skills are great foundation to complement your technique with. And they're also the eight ones that we often see kind of breaks down on the golf course. So one we already talked about is having that play box. But then it is too, you know, learning to actually commit your decisions. In golf, we never know beforehand if we make the right decision, decision, but we have to learn to make one and stick to it. And many golfers know it, but very few golfers have ever practiced it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so we, we have eight specific um, skills that we, we encourage teachers or players to just, you know, add to what they're already doing. Because we're never saying we're technical teachers too. We think it's really important. We're just insufficient to only look there. Yes. So it will make you a better technical teacher if you're aware of these other areas too. Well, it allows a person to, to really coach. It, it, rather than coaching a golf swing, you, you, all of a sudden you're coaching, you're coaching a golfer, you're coaching a person. Yes. Mm. Yeah, because I don't, you know, for as long as golf exists, it's always going to be a person playing golf, I think. <laughs> so so if, that's what I figure. If we can be good at coaching it, it kind of makes sense to look at golf and also look at the person. So if we look at these skills... Are there any other traits that you see with the best players that you've worked with that that maybe are separate from those skills? Oh yeah, yeah. We know very, you know, very many things. But you know, some of the common denominators I often see with the very, very best players that they they become really good at being more their their own best coaches too, not getting over reliant on the coach. And like we always want to coach and train our players to be <clears throat> be better and better at coaching themselves because. On the golf course, you can't get, get advice from other people. <laughs> and uh, with the better players, therefore, we, we see that they, they become really good at being aware of themselves and honest about themselves. And they're not afraid to, like, you know, say that things are going on. They're, they're much quicker being honest and aware. And, and you know, another thing, well, two other things we feel is very, very often see is that they, they get very good at separating the process and the outcome, that they, they do stay committed to the things under their control, and they know by doing that more often they're going to like the outcome. And and that is a huge piece that any level golfer can get better at. And then I would say maybe one of the bigger things that is to keep that passion or intrinsic motivation for the game. And, you know, we know that through all the research that the more sustainable performers are the ones that have, you know, extrinsic motivation, like wanting to have a low score, wanting to win a major, but also the, that love for the game independent of outcome. The longer they play and the longer they compete, that becomes a bigger and bigger factor to take care of. Is that because because of all these other things that go on, you know. Uh, yeah, whether it's a, and there are all the things, but also the game, because the better you are, everybody only talks about, you know, scoring, rankings, money, and all of it is just about that. And after a while, they, you know, they, they get hollow, and they it just becomes, you know, hotel travel and uh, outcomes that matters, and it's easy to lose the heart of the game, and if that goes on too long, the performance suffers. 
It's interesting you say that because so often I've read, and not just through golf, but with other sports as well, where an athlete will take a short break and then come back and they'll make a statement along the lines of, I really forgot what I most enjoyed about the sport and why I got into it in the first place and I feel like I've rekindled my passion for the game. And yes. you see that with all sports and it, it's, it's almost that reminder. So with your trainings, do you actually look to instill that into the oh, athletes? Oh, we, we, you know, we coach a lot of them, male and female tour players, and th- this is something you know, we bring up at least yearly with all those players and have them give them assignments. We wrote about, about it in our second book, The Game Before the Game, and we call it Having a Spirit of the Game Alive, but we're actually re- reworking some of that Material because just this winter with players coming for off-season practice, we realize we need to have even more material around <laughs> this piece because they need help with it, and not just them. You know, junior golfers, some amateur golfers. It's 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 a big big piece. So yes, we're very active with that, helping them get some clarity and get that spark back. One of, one of the things that's emerged from speaking with other other people with the podcast is that. A question that they like to ask golfers or other athletes: Why do you why do you play this sport? Why do you play golf? Yes. And depending on what their why is, if it's to make someone else happy, unless it's something that's actually to, to satisfy an urge within themselves because they love the game, then it's it's not likely to be sustainable. Correct. <laughs> you know, correct. And then if you play for a long time. That needs to be revisited because what made it special when you were in the teenage years is going to be a bit different when you're in the 20s, and then it's going to be different in the 30s. So it's incredibly important. So actually, we ask every golf school participants about that all the time. We start a new golf school tomorrow, and we'll ask them again. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you see golf evolving or golf coaching evolving over time, say over the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's so incredibly exciting now, and you know, we just notice it because you know, when being around and just the interest in things. But I I do think, of course, you know, with everything that's happening now with TrackMan, etc., it's going to be a lot on the technical aspect, so much going on. But I really do see that as far as we come now with fitness, we come with technique, and we come with with equipment. There still is this fourth area that is still haven't been good enough and Lynn and I and us at Vision 54 we just want to you know be part of the journey making that as clear and undoubtedly you know useful for any golfer and professional around the world so I, I just see because it's still a human being who plays golf and we just need you know need to beef up that area to something that is is it's not just here and there golfers get help with that it's just any golf club on, on the planet should have someone on staff who can help with this. <laughs> it's interesting that you mention uh, TrackMan, and and I'm thinking of other other units like PuttLab, which which of course measures the movement of a putting stroke. But they're actually giving you data. They're giving you historical data. They're giving you data about what happened. They're great coaching tools, and it's very easy to be seduced by the bright, shiny things, um, particularly units like. Those which have a, a, you know, a pretty good price tag, and and just to remind yourself that again that you're working with a, with a player, and and that this is only a part of the game. It's not, it's not everything about the game. 
Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think we are moving towards a more comprehensive uh, way of doing it. It's yeah. It's you know. I I I feel it's moving in that direction, and it's very exciting. And so for players of different levels, if you, if you have a a junior coming into the game, what's your approach with them versus a tour player? Well, actually, there's no no difference whatsoever because you're still looking at them and you know helping them with their spirit of the game and helping them with having a more comprehensive set of skills. But of course, the language using explaining it or the exercise we're doing might be different. But you know, we have we have at our golf schools we can have a 20 handicap player and a PGA Tour player. And they still can learn the same things, but of course their skill levels are different. But, but um, you know, all all of us need to check up on fitness stuff. All of us need to check up on technical things. All of us need to check up on what we call the playing skills. So, so that's like a universal language. But then you come in at different levels of it. Yes. Yeah. And I guess with a lot of the the exercises um, that I read in, in your book, you know, things like developing balance and um, hitting shots standing on just your left leg or hitting shots just standing on your right leg. I guess you modify those according to the capabilities of the player who's in front of you. Yes, exactly. Mm. Exactly. But, you know, when it comes to just some of the emotional skills, it's usually no different having a tour player than a, <laughs> than a, a, a junior if, if that's the skill they need to improve on. And some look. Sometimes the professional players, the emotional attachments are stronger because golf is, for a lot of them, golf is everything. You know how they, a lot of them, identify with themselves as being golfers, and how if they perform well, then they feel like they're a good person. If they don't perform well, they don't. Of course, yeah. that's not a that's not a right way to go about it. But that's what a lot do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's all fun stuff to get to do. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Pierre, I encourage that all of the, the listeners to have a look at, at the work that you've done, whether that's through the books that you've written. And one we didn't mention was talking about a book called Golf Parent for the Future, which talks yeah. about getting young people into the game. And as we just mentioned, you know, a lot of the skills that are required of seasoned players are actually required for young players, getting them excited about the game and keeping them involved with it. As you know, the, the, the American Junior Golf Association asked us to write the golf plan for the future, but it's, it's four pieces of advice for, for the parents. But the message actually for anyone supporting any other golfer, <laughs> just, you know, to more towards a more growth mindset uh, look at things. And it's been translated to like 11 languages now, and it's all self-published. So we're, we're happy about that one. And we also actually have two uh, iPhone apps now that is available globally, and, and it's been fun because many reading our books, they can they understand and they, they like the message, but it still boils down to doing something. So we, we keep adding more and more products that can be useful and helps you what to do if you're on the golf course or practice area to actually integrate it into your backbone. So those iPhone apps, they're available through the through the App Store. Tell me, yeah. what are the name of, of the apps? Well, it's in, if you search for Vision 54, uh, the, both of them come up. So that's usually the easiest way to go about it. Okay. Well, I'm sure that plenty will do that. Pia, thanks for your time. 
Uh, yes, you mentioned earlier that you may be coming back out to Australia late in 2014. I certainly hope so. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not alone in that. I know that most professional golfers in Australia and professional coaches in Australia uh, know of your work and I would certainly encourage them. I probably won't need to encourage them. They'll be there they'll be there in a flash. So thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed the chat and I'm sure that there's so much value that listeners are going to get from our chat as well. Thank you very much, Peter, and you keep on doing all your great work as well.